And today we are starting a brand new series. You know that um, in some churches, uh, there's this period up till Easter that we're in right now. It actually started last week. And we have a word for that. Starts with an L. Does any of you know it? Lent. Yeah, Lent is this period. And in some, in some churches, depending on the type of uh, setup that they have, liturgical and so on, they have this really cool tradition uh, called Lent. And Lent is kind of this period of observation as we move toward the Easter season. So um, anyway, we're, we're doing our own series here and we're just starting it today and uh, we've advertised it on Facebook and so on. Remember the last series that we did, we got so much crazy feedback on, uh, on Facebook from the atheists, nihilists, Satanists who started weighing in and back and forth and all that. So we'll see what happens with this one. But this is called Jesus Said What? Jesus said what? And um, what we're going to do is look at some of the outrageous things that Jesus said. And he said some pretty outrageous things, things that are still quoted today, things that are still misquoted today. But I mean, if you really understand what he was talking about uh, in some of the things that he said, I mean, they are just outrageous claims but things that have an effect, a powerful effect uh, on our lives today. Jesus said what? And sometimes our image of Jesus is, is skewed and our image of Christianity is skewed because we think Jesus said some things or didn't say other things or we mis misunderstand, misquote what he said. And what happens is we end up with a different Jesus. And a lot of people have walked away from a Christianity these days that wasn't even a Christianity that was founded on Jesus. It's founded on uh, a Jesus that some people invented and half the things that they're saying that Jesus said or that he stood for aren't really the things that he said or that he stood for. And so they're rejecting a Christianity that doesn't even have its foundation in the Bible. And so if you've got a wrong Jesus, you've got a wrong Christianity. If you've got a wrong Christianity, you've got to find a right Christianity. In any case, uh, we're going to be looking into some of the outrageous things. So next week, we're going to look at the very, very first recorded words of Jesus in the Gospels. They are outrageous. Uh, you can get a list of the sermon titles on our homepage on our website. But I thought it would be good today to lay a foundation uh, to answer a question that a lot of people, a lot of church people uh, think about it, but keep it in the back burner. Sometimes they address it, sometimes they don't, but it's always simmering there. Uh, however, your, your non-Christian friend or your friend of a different religious viewpoint, perhaps, or your friend who's a nun, which means somebody who has no religious affiliation at all, they're, they're going to ask you this question. And usually when this question is asked, it's hard to answer. And the basic question is, well, hold on a second. How do we even know that Jesus said anything? Like we read out of the Bible and we preach out of the Bible in a church and we assume that what it says in Matthew and Mark and Luke and John and so on is what Jesus said. Well, who says? Why do we say that? 
Why do we have such uh, an affirmation? How do we know that we can even trust these things? If we're going to place our faith on what Jesus allegedly said, uh, it would be a good idea to know that what we're reading out of is actually what he did say, okay? So that's what we're going to answer today. Can we actually trust the Gospels? Matthew and Mark and Luke and John when we say Jesus said what? So I'm going to give you, this message is a little bit different. It's a little bit technical. It's very teachy. Um, so I, I'm going to try and keep it interesting for you and keep it fun for you um, and not put you to sleep too, too quickly. All right. But especially those of you who have kids uh, and if there's young people in the room, let me tell you, you're going to get to a certain age and your kids are going to get to a certain age. It is coming. You mark my words where they will be challenged by a SAGEP professor, a university professor. And if they don't know the answer, they're going to throw their faith away and they're going to walk away from it. They're going to walk away from the church. They're going to walk away from the Christianity that you tried to, to teach them. Uh, so it's very important, especially for young people, to develop convictions as to why they believe that Jesus said what he said in Matthew and Mark and Luke and John. I'm telling you that young people are running from the church in droves. Uh, and the statistics are bearing this out. The highest, uh, fastest growing religious view in North America is no religious view. And it is from people who grew up in religion and threw it away because of whatever reason. So I want to try and give you a foundation uh, that, so that you can trust what it says in Matthew and Mark and Luke and John in Jesus said, what? So here's, um, here's the first thing that you need to learn. When we talk about Matthew and Mark and Luke and John and really the entire New Testament, which is 27 books, and the entire Old Testament, which is another 39 books, we do not have them. You say, excuse me, you're reading from them. Okay, yes, but we do not have what's called the autographa or the originals, okay? We do not have these things. Um, what we have are lots of copies of them, and we'll get into that in a moment, but we do not have the original Bible, all right? And that, that may scare some of you. Uh, you'll see in a few minutes that it shouldn't scare you at all, but we do not have it. Um, yeah, and you say, well, where did we get what we're reading then? And if you've been in this church for any length of time, I've taught this over and over again because it's so important for people to actually get this and understand this okay we do not have the original texts of these things what we have is a whole bunch of copies of them and we have a fancy term for this we call these things manuscripts all right uh, so we do not have the autographs what we have are a bunch of copies of these autographs. And I've got something on the screen that you might find a little funny, a little easier to understand. And I call this Aunt Sally's secret recipe, her, her cookies, let's say. Okay. And so you, uh, the way that we've got the Bible is very similar to the story I'm about to tell you about Aunt Sally's special cookies. So I want you to envision that Aunt Sally has, uh, you know, she's a senior lady and she's got some friends that she plays cards with and she's like, she's always cooking, she's always in the kitchen and Aunt Sally came up with this recipe for these very special cookies. 
You can copy it down if you want. It's a real recipe, okay? So these cookies are not just ordinary cookies. These cookies are the fountain of youth. And they will transform anybody's life who eats them and turn them young again. It'll, the, the cookies will give them like eternal youth, all right? So they are some pretty amazing cookies, Aunt Sally's cookies. So if you were Aunt Sally and you, and you discovered this recipe of these incredible like magic cookies, what would you do with the recipe? Sell it, yeah. Sell it, that's good, George, yeah. W what else would you do with it, though? And let's pretend you had no technology. Let's pretend there was no cell phone to take a picture of it. There was no photocopy machine. What would you do with your precious recipe? You'd make some copies, yeah. And because you have friends who you play cards with every week, you know, you probably start with your friends. You probably, I got to share these cookies with my friends. I mean, we're like, we're, we're in our 80s now. Some of us are in our 90s. And wouldn't it be nice to, to become young again? And the first people that I'm going to share my magic recipe with are my, my card-playing friends. So, so what does she do? She, she, she copies it or she sits down with her friends and they sit and they copy that recipe and they make sure they got it all right and they copy the recipe and then what do those friends do? They, they have other friends so they copy, 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 copy. But then you know what happens. Maybe a few days later, Aunt Sally, she's in a panic because her dog ate the recipe. She had it in a special place in her house she came home from playing cards one day and there are pieces of the recipe all over the floor. She's in a panic. So what do you think Aunt Sally's going to do? She's going to tape it. Yeah, she's going to try and tape it. But let's say it's just beyond recognition. I mean, the dog, you know, slobber all over it and the ink is running all over the place. Like it's just untapable, unpreservable. It's finished. Like the original is essentially gone. What is the first thing that Aunt Sally's going to do? She's calling her friends. She said, hold, hold the phone here. We've got copies of this thing. They're not photocopies. There's no photocopying in Aunt Sally's little, little world. There's no cell phones. There's no technology. They do things the old-fashioned way there. So what's she going to do? She's going to say, okay, I'm going to get my first little group of friends together, and we're going to take the other friends together. We're going to take all these copies. We're going to put them on the table, and we're going to see, can we, can we rebuild the original with these copies? Well, we look at, you know, the one lady, she copied it down and she, she, she mixed a couple of words, you know. It says one and a half cups of powdered sugar. And in hers, it says one and a half cups of powdered. Powdered what? We don't know. But then another copy says one and a half cups of powdered sugar. Say, oh, okay, well, it's got, probably going to be a, one and a half cups of powdered sugar. And then there's, another, there's another copy that said, it said two teaspoons of cream of tartar. But then there was three other copies that said no teaspoons of cream. Of, so they, how, how do we know how many? So we said, well, okay, if it says no teaspoons, but one says two teaspoons, it's probably going to be two teaspoons. If we find some more copies, and they all say two teaspoons. So it's probably two teaspoons. Do you understand the process? So depending on how good those copies are, Aunt Sally can have no fear. 
Her magic recipe can be preserved. And as George says, she can market it to the world and she can be not only, you know, 20 years old forever. She can be a, like a gazillionaire and, and be 20 years old forever. So she's happy because at least she's got those copies. What I just told you is exactly what we do with the Bible. It is exactly what we do with Matthew and Mark and Luke and John and the entire New Testament. It's exactly what we do with the Old Testament because we don't have any originals. What we have is a bunch of manuscripts and there's three things about these manuscripts you should know. Number one, they're old and I'm going to show you some in a few minutes on the screen. Number two, there's a whole lot of them, especially, especially in the case of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John and so, so on. You've got a, a, an avalanche of these things compared to anything else at that time in the world, in the ancient world. There's nothing like the New Testament. You have just in the Greek language over 5,000 of these manuscripts kicking around in museums and so on. So you've got, you've got many, many of them. You've got, uh, they're very old. Some of them are extremely old. I'll show you the oldest one in a moment. Uh, and there is a variety to them. So just like Aunt Sally's recipe, you do have to do the work of saying, okay, what was actually in the original? Because one manuscript we've got here says this, and the other one says that, and we have to figure out, well, what did the original really, really say? Fortunately for us, in about 99% of, uh, of the cases, those, those little, little mishaps are trivial. So you've got words that are switched around, you've got words that are copied twice, you've got words that are missing, but you've got so many of these copies that you can rebuild it. The more copies you have, the better your results are of, of discovering what the original is, just like Aunt Sally's recipe, okay? So just like her recipe, we can reconstruct the original New Testament. It's a science, we call this science textual criticism okay it doesn't mean we're saying the bible's bad it means we're trying to figure out what was in the original so that when we pick this book up now we are reading a a a found recipe okay so let me show you some of these old 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 manuscripts and and we'll get into it a little bit deeper here uh this is from um what they call codex vaticanus uh this the vatican museum has actually uh, uh digitized this and this is in uh what they call unseal yeah, I think unsealed lettering or in French uh, majuscule. So this is all in capital letters. It's in Greek. It's really, really old. Uh, 350 AD is super, super old. When you talk about stuff in the ancient world, and this has got all the New Testament in it and some other stuff. And uh, again, the, it's in possession of the Vatican. You can even look at it online. I mean, if you ever learn Greek or can read Greek, you, you would be able to read that. Um, and again, nowadays, these things are, are online. Here's another one that's also online. We call this Codex uh, Sinaiticus. This is a little bit earlier even, about 340 AD all nice and bound up and everything. And back then they didn't have chapter and verse and headings and all these little pretty titles that we have in our modern Bibles. We just put those in to make it easier. But you have uh, a manuscript there that's full, uh, beautifully bound and preserved, uh, you know, since 340 AD. That's a really gorgeous one. Uh, this one's even more interesting. We call this the Chester Beatty Papyri. And this is even earlier. This is 250 AD. Uh, you're looking, I think, at a portion of the Gospel of Luke there. 
Very, very hard to read because it's so, so small, but just so you get the idea. And this is the oldest one. Even the liberal scholars uh, will, will give it this date. This is called the John Rylands Papyri. It was found in Egypt, uh, made its way all the way to Egypt from where it would have been written, which was more, uh, uh, you, you've got a distance that it would have had to travel, you know, from the area of Judea uh, all the way over to Egypt is quite a hike for this thing. And uh, that little scrap that you're looking at, it's about three inches uh, from John chapter 18, verses 31 to 33 on one side, and on the flip side is verses 37 and 38. It's the undisputed uh, oldest, oldest manuscript that we have actually found of the New Testament. It, it runs between 117 and 138 AD. You say, so what? I'll tell you why that's so exciting, because you, you've got old, old stuff there. It gets older and older, and the, you know, the longer we live, the more of these things we're going to find. But you want them to be old, you want a lot of them, and you want to inspect all those copies of those recipes to see, okay, what did the original actually, actually say? And as I mentioned before, you, you, we, have, we have a great, great... Um, uh, uh, asset in this whole process in that the way these people copied these this secret recipe down if you will was very very accurate so you've got you've got some discrepancies you've got some variants but none of them are major none of them affect any major doctrine whatsoever they're fairly trivial things okay I'll give you one of them um, just off the top of my head um, it's found in 1 John chapter 5, all right? This is the most famous New Testament uh, manuscript uh, uh, variant of all time. Um, and uh, I know this because whenever I've talked to uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, for example, or groups that reject the Trinity, they always bring up this text. and They say, look, 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 your Bible's corrupt and so on, uh, but they don't really understand the whole process of how we got the Bible. So 1 John chapter 5 and uh, verses uh, 7 and 8. Okay, I'll read it from one version. Um, it says, for there are three that testify the spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three are in agreement. Okay, that's from 1 John uh, chapter 5, verses 7 and 8 in the Bible's New Testament. Now, if you go to other versions of the Bible, like, for instance, the King James, it's going to read this way. There are three that testify in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. Say, well, hold on, like, what's going on? Is one Bible teach the Trinity and the other Bible doesn't teach the Trinity? Like, why is there a discrepancy there? For exactly the reason that I just told you, one of those copies of the recipe has that and all the rest of them don't. So the one that has the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and these three are one, it's, it's relatively new. It dates to, dates to like the 13th century. So it's really quite a new manuscript. All the other ones that we have do not have it worded that way. They have it worded as the, the spirit, the flesh, and the water, or whatever, the blood and the water. And you say, well, what does that even mean anyway? That's a subject for another day. The point is, that is a variant. You say, well, does the Bible not teach the Trinity? Of course it does. Read the New Testament, you're going to see the Trinity all over the place. That is a verse where we have a variant. We are not entirely sure 
what the original said for sure, for sure, for sure. The odds are that this thing of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, these three are one, that that is not what was in the original uh, text of the Bible. That's the odds, okay? So there you have a classic example of a variant. Does it, does it mean that the Bible is not the Word of God? No, it doesn't mean that. It means that we do not know what it said in that place, that specific, specific reference. Do you understand so far? Just like Aunt Sally's recipe, okay? So we can, we can rebuild uh, the New Testament very well using all of these manuscripts. But the reality is, because of the impact that the New Testament had on the Roman world, um, it, it began to, to rock the boat, so to speak, that the early church um, very, very early. So because of that impact, there was an avalanche of sermons, of um, things said by the early church fathers, an avalanche of quotes of the New Testament. People were, were preaching out of the content of the New Testament so, 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 so fast that you could actually have no copies of it, no manuscripts of Aunt Sally's recipe, and you could still rebuild the entire New Testament because it was preached on so much and so early. I mean, that is like uncanny, uh, but we can do that because, again, there was so much uh, preaching of this book. Um, on the screen, you're, you're going to see a picture of two books there, and uh, I just want to give you an illustration of this. Um, on the left, you see a book there called uh, Misquoting Jesus. It's by a New Testament scholar by the name of Bart Ehrman. Bart Ehrman is probably now the most popular in popular culture uh, New Testament scholar in the world. He is a former born-again Christian who rejected his faith when he went to a cons uh, uh, first a conservative Bible-believing Bible college, and then he went to Wheaton College and studied actually under the one of the greatest New Testament scholars of all time, a guy named Bruce Metzger. And as Bart Ehrman began to study the New Testament, he, he began to get really, really bothered by what I just, what I just showed you. And uh, he tells the story of how he actually walked away from the faith, not so much for that, but more because of the suffering that he saw in life and the classic question, why would God allow suffering if God is good and so on. Uh, but what Bart Ehrman does is he runs around the world today and he he teaches what I just taught, but he teaches it in a way that says, you know, the New Testament is filled with errors and we don't know that it's the word of God and why wouldn't God have given us the originals and so on and so on and so on. He goes on and on and on about this uh, in his book, uh, Misquoting Jesus, which was written in uh, the year 2005. Um, but also in the year 2005, he co-authored a book, which he doesn't talk about too often, with his mentor, Bruce Metzger. And Bruce Metzger, now deceased, was regarded as one of the best New Testament scholars who ever lived. And they together wrote a book called The Text of the New Testament. And this is a quote from the book, okay? Uh, and again, this has got Bart Ehrman's name on it. I don't know if he actually wrote this part of it, but this is what it says. Besides textual evidence derived from New Testament Greek manuscripts, I showed you some of those manuscripts on the screen, and from early versions, that means they were translated into different languages at the time, the textual critic compares numerous scriptural quotes used in 
commentaries and sermons and other treatises by the early church fathers. Indeed, listen closely, so extensive are these citations that if all other sources of our knowledge of the text of the New Testament were destroyed, that means if all of Aunt Sally's copies of the Aunt Sally's recipe were destroyed, there would be sufficient, uh, uh, they would be sufficient alone, all this preaching and all these sermons for the reconstruction of practically the entire New Testament. So you have an avalanche of preaching because this content was rocking the Roman world at that time. It was spreading so, so, so fast. So you don't need all of this stuff. You don't need Codex Sinaiticus and you don't need Codex Vaticanus and you don't need the Chester B. Papyri and you don't need the John Rylands. All you need is the preaching of the early church fathers and even Bart Ehrman the scholar who tries to say that the New Testament is inaccurate and so on, even he writes this in a book that was published the same year as his now famous bestseller, New York Times bestseller, misquoting Jesus. He says, so what, so what, so what? Okay, let me show you a little bit more because I want you to understand uh, uh, how we date these things and the confidence that we can have when we read our New Testament. We can date the originals, what we call the autographs, even though we don't have any of them. We can know precisely when those things were written because of what is inside. So I'm going to show you a few little diagrams here. And I know on Facebook we're going to track, try and track and keep this going with you so you can see this all as well. Okay, so uh, we, we have on the screen there a little red cross. This is when, when Jesus died. And there's nobody in the world who's going to deny that Jesus actually died. There's nothing supernatural about Jesus' death. No liberal scholar will deny it. Bart Ehrman won't deny it. We know that Jesus died and the traditional date that we have is somewhere between 30 and 33. So I just plopped it somewhere in the middle there, okay? So that is when Jesus died. What we can do, again, putting things together and by reading the New Testament, understanding the history of the time, we can pinpoint with with absolute precision not so much when the gospels were written matthew mark luke and john there's a little bit of mystery there but we can pinpoint with absolute precision when the apostle paul the the jewish uh, 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 hater of christianity and hater of the church who was radically converted uh, that we see in the book of Acts, who wrote more than half of the New Testament, we can precisely date when this man wrote his work. And even Bart Ehrman will agree, we can absolutely precisely date it, and let me show you how. So between 50 and 68, we are 100% sure that Paul wrote between uh, uh, those two times. Between 50 and 68, uh, oh, I'm going too far. Here, let me, let, let me show you how, okay? Um, if you go to the book of Acts, chapter 18, you don't necessarily have to do this now, but what we know before we even look at the book of Acts is a couple of historical facts, okay? Not trying to bore you, but just, just saying, and this, these are things that are in history. It's not religious people who are saying this. These are things that actually happened. We know that the emperor at the time of, the, of the 40s, um, Claudius, I think it was, that he expelled the Jews from the city of Rome in the year 49. 
we knew that we know that he did this uh, because of the this new this new belief system, which was Christianity, and so he, he didn't like this. And to try and calm things down, he expels these these Jews from the city of Rome in the year 49. AD. We know this. And yet when we go to the New Testament and we pick up the book of Acts, we see a startling detail in Acts chapter 18 uh, verses 1 to 2. And we see that the apostle Paul, who's talked about through the book of Acts, that he left Athens and he heads to the city of Corinth. These are real places, really existed. You can still visit them today. He went to the city of Corinth and he meets uh, somebody named Aquila, who's a native of a place called Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife and so on because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Bingo. What that does is it corroborates something that we know in the ancient world. And so we say, well then, Paul must have arrived in the city of Corinth in the year 50. I mean, here you have a, you have a little detail in the book of Acts which coincides perfectly time time-wise with what we know about ancient history. So we know that he arrived in the year 50 in the city of Corinth, just like the book of Acts says. We also know something else as we continue to read the chapter. We know that there was a proconsul, uh, you don't have to know what that means, his type of leader over a province, and he was appointed to a place called Achaia in the year 51. Again, we know this from ancient history. Nobody debates this. This is not written by religious people. We just know that this is a historical fact, and yet we read in Acts chapter 18, verse, uh, verse 12, uh, while Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him into court, and they charged him with trying to persuade the people to worship God in a way that was contrary to their law. And they tried to attack Paul because they disagree with his whole new view on Christianity and he's become a believer and so on. You say, so what, so what, so what? Well, what this does is this further tells us that there's no way that this guy Paul was a made up figure. There's no way that he was not there just as written in the book of Acts because you've got two little minor details of history that nobody really cares about that completely coincide perfectly with what we see in the book of Acts. And we know that almost immediately Paul began to write the, the letter of 1 Corinthians right after that. So that would be in A.D. 50. No one disagrees with this. Bart Ehrman won't even disagree with it. In fact, Bart Ehrman will go even further and he will say that the book of Galatians, which is also a letter that Paul wrote, may have been written as early as A.D. 48. Man, that is super, super early. That means you've got somebody writing about Jesus like 15 years after his crucifixion and resurrection. That is wickedly close to the time of the event in question. You do not see anything like this in the ancient world. What kind of person would have the courage to put that down in writing if it wasn't actually something that took place? So we can pinpoint Paul to a 
T, uh, the beginning of his writing, at least in the year AD 50. And then we know that the, the limit to when Paul finished writing would have been the year 68. Because again, we know that uh, another political leader uh, arrives in uh, the province of Judea in the year 60. His name is Festus. We know this is a historical fact. And again, we see this in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 25, we see it mentioned that Festus comes into town and he's there specifically to deal with this problem of this guy named Paul who was brought up on charges and uh, they want him to face charges in Judea. And Paul says, no, I want to go to Rome. I'm a Roman citizen. Let me stand before Caesar for the things that I believe. I do not want to be tried in Judea. I want to be tried in Rome. And it's Portius Festus who has to deal with this mess. And we know this from the history books. And yet we see this right there in the book of Acts chapter 25, verses 1 to 12. We know later that Paul would be under arrest. Uh, he would face a, a few prison terms before he died. And we know that he died under the emperor Nero. And that would be the latest date that we could put would be the year 68 because that's when Nero died. So that is how we know that Paul's uh, letters were definitely beyond dispute written between the year 50 and the year 68. You say, well, that's cool. That's interesting. Tell me more. In the year 70, we know that the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed along with the city. Never since been rebuilt. You can go to Jerusalem and see the remains of the of the, the, the western wall, the retaining wall of the temple. It's a very famous wall. We call it the Wailing Wall. Uh, and people go there to pray and so on. It's the holiest site in, in Judaism, in Christianity, even in Islam. It's a very, very uh, venerated site, okay? And so in the year 70, everything changed. Their temple is destroyed. Their city is destroyed. It's interesting. We don't read one thing. Not one single time in the entire New Testament is the destruction of the city or the temple mentioned. Not one single time. It isn't even alluded to. So most say, well, that's because the New Testament was written before the temple was destroyed. So, I mean, it was actually Jesus who predicted that the temple would be destroyed. But we do not read about its destruction in the New Testament, but it happened in the year 70. Okay, fine. Uh, the, all those quotes that we have from the early church fathers, all those sermons that were preached, they're preached so early, about 98, 96, 98. We see the first one crop on the scene uh, by a guy named Polycarp, uh, Ignatius, these people who actually had a connection with the apostles, with the apostle John, for example. These people met those people and they were preaching these sermons that were out of quotes of the New Testament super early, as early as 96. We see those quotes start to uh, crop on the scene. And so we have to assume all the rest, Matthew and Mark and Luke and John and the book of Revelation and 1st and 2nd and 3rd John and 1st and 2nd Peter and uh, all these things that Paul didn't write, the Gospels, uh, the book of Jude, uh, all these things have to be somewhere between the death of Jesus and when all these sermons started going out. 
So we say, all right, let's say 33 to about 95. I mean, that's as far as we can go. Again, probably the New Testament was completed way before then, probably before the destruction of that temple. But let's give it the benefit of the doubt. Let's give the skeptic the benefit of the doubt and say, well, the rest of the New Testament has to be there. Okay, so and then you see, then you see, Ah, there you see, uh, the, the copies that we actually have found, starting from the John Ryland's manuscript and so on. So if you put all this stuff together, what do you have? You have an unbroken chain of custody of this information. There's no time for it to change. There's no time for it to be altered. There's no time for lies to creep in. There's no time for people to do that because all this stuff is starting so fast and so early and it rocked the Roman Empire was so fast. And there is nothing in the ancient world that compares to this. So from a from a, the standpoint of this sort of, you know, we've gone through this geek exercise here. There's been a nerdy exercise. This is a very important exercise because the manuscript evidence is what we call it, would tell us that we have a very, very good reason to believe that this New Testament that we pick up and it says the things that Jesus said and did, we have very good reason to believe that these people wrote something down really fast and that information has not been altered. We have it from all this preaching. We have it from all these manuscripts. We just have an avalanche of information. The real problem on our hands and the real reason why people doubt the Gospels, the real reason why people like Bart Ehrman write these books and, and many, many different New Testament scholars try and attack the things that Jesus said and did, the real reason is not because of history. The real reason is because this book contains the supernatural. It speaks of a God who operates not just naturally, not just in history, but he operates supernaturally. So you've got, you know, Jesus walking on water and multiplying food and raising the dead and casting out devils. I mean, you've got a whole different kind of thing there where you've got the miraculous. And this is the beef that people have. If Jesus were just somebody who came on the scene and said, I'm the Messiah, I'm God, and he died on a cross, and that was it, nobody would care. People would say, well, of course he did. Of course he really did those things, but who cares? No, the reason why people care and the reason why people still believe it, and on the contrary, the reason why people still attack it is because the content of this Jesus, his life is supernatural and he not only calls himself God he is raised from the dead what and so what do we do we say that's impossible I mean it's, it can't it can't happen but when we do that that's not because of historical evidence that's because of us. That's because we say it's impossible. The supernatural doesn't happen. Dead people don't get up out of graves. We can't multiply fish. We can't walk on water. Nobody does those things. It's impossible. It can't have happened. But that is our bias. That is our problem. We can look into the historical evidence for this stuff and say, well, if we go by, you know, manuscript evidence and all the same stuff that we do for anything else, we have a very good reason to believe that these people wrote down what they saw. 
So what do we do? We, we try and sustain unbelief. And, you know, then we run into a passage like this from Luke chapter 3, the whole Christmas story. And it names all these people who we can easily corroborate. You know, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, we know who he was. When Pontius Pilate was the governor of Judea, we now know who he was. I've stood in front of a, of a marble slab. I think it's marble that has his name on it. You know, people used to, used to say that Pontius Pilate never existed. Now we have a monument with his name on it. Herod, Tetrarch of Galilee. We know the whole Herod family from ancient history. His brother Philip, Tetrarch of Iturea and Trachonitis and Lysanias and Caiaphas. Like, we know all these people were real. We, we say, okay, 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 and we try to sustain unbelief. And what we do is we do three things. We say, all right, all right, all right, they were right about those things. Fine, fine, we'll, we'll, we'll give you all that. But there's no way that they were right about the supernatural. No way, it can't happen, miracles don't happen, supernatural things don't happen. It's impossible. Let me tell you there are only three arguments that you can put out. Only three if you try and sustain unbelief. Believe me, I have tried to do that. I am a natural born unbeliever. Okay? I do not believe in Christianity because it makes me feel good. I do not believe in Christianity uh, even because of an emotional thing or a personal experience. My belief in Christianity goes beyond all those things. My belief in Christianity is because of evidence. And if I don't like the way the evidence leads me, that's my problem. It's not the evidence's problem. So if you try to sustain unbelief, this is what you do. You say, well, 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 Jesus walking on water and Jesus performing miracles and angels and demons and this kind of nonsense and, you know, all this stuff, this was not in the original. This was added. You know, these zealous people, they're, they're unevolved on the food chain and they put all these things in. They don't know the difference between miracles Miracles and non-miracles, they're kind of daft, you know, they're kind of obtuse. And over time, they sort of made Jesus God and they made him be raised from the dead and they made up all these miracles and they stuffed them into all these copies of Aunt Sally's recipe. And so there's no way the supernatural was in the autographs. Well, we just spent 20 minutes showing you that it most definitely was in the autographs. We can say it didn't happen. We can try to disbelieve it, but it most certainly was in the autographs. The autographs, uh, uh, we don't have them, but those copies are so good that we can definitely say that the supernatural was there. That's a terrible excuse if you know the manuscript evidence. So we say, all right, all right, all right, maybe that's a bad excuse. Uh, maybe the supernatural was in the autographs, but you know what? It's an exaggeration. These people, I mean, come on, they're from first century Judea and Jerusalem and, you know, they're, they're not as evolved as we are. They're not as intelligent as we are. They've got no technology. They've got no brains. They're out there in the bush, you know, smoking too much magic mushroom or whatever. And they write these things down and they say, oh, yeah, this is a miracle. Come on, it's not a miracle. Jesus didn't multiply the fish quite like that. They just kind of thought that and they just kind of wished that. Hello, have you read the Gospels? Have you seen the doubt of these people in the Gospels? I mean, the very resurrection of Jesus from the dead, the cornerstone of Christianity is doubted by Jesus' first followers. You know who actually believes in the resurrection at the beginning if you read the Gospels? Not these, these superman apostles. They're the doubters. Who are the ones who actually believe in the resurrection at the beginning? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Any of you know? A group of women. 
Do you know back then in the first century, a group of women, women's testimony was invalid in a court of law. You, you could not even bring a woman into a court of law to testify. They were regarded as nothing. And yet you have in the gospels written by men that they were the ones who disbelieved and doubted. And yet this group of women had to persuade them. Excuse me? Who in, their, who in the world would make that up? <laughs> These men were writing down what they experienced. So if we say they're, they're silly and they're daft and they're a bit obtuse and there's exaggeration, read the Gospels. You will see, wow, they seem to know the difference between fantasy and reality. They seem to be very, very honest about their own doubt. Uh, so that's not a really good excuse. And then what we can do is we can try this one. We can say, well, the supernatural was in the autographs. Okay, okay, okay. You've persuaded me with your magic manuscript evidence argument, blah, blah, blah. But it's a lie. It's a deliberate deception to try and bring forth a new religion to challenge Judaism, whatever. They made this figure, Jesus, into the Messiah. They made him into God. They crafted an elaborate scheme, and we still believe in their lies today. It's all a big hoax. It's all a big lie. Your church is a big joke, and you know, all your pastor wants is your money, and it's all a big lie, and this is what the church has been for 2,000 years, one big lie. Okay, so You've got people who in the first century are dying violent deaths in Roman arenas, eaten by lions. I mean, every single writer of the New Testament is killed because of their belief in a lie. I, I, can, I can remember reading the story of, um, of uh, Richard Nixon. Uh, you just bring up current news, you know. Richard Nixon, who would have faced impeachment but resigned before uh, because largely of the Watergate scandal. Okay, those of you who want to dig into the past and see the whole thing of Richard Nixon. And there were a number of people who went to jail uh, because of the whole scandal with Nixon, in particular the Watergate thing where they broke into this hotel and tried to cover it up. And one of those people, his name was Charles Colson. He was kind of Nixon's right-hand man, and he went to prison for a number of years, uh, became a Christian, and had a huge impact uh, worldwide, actually, through his books and his preaching and uh, prison fellowship. He created that, and Angel Tree, and all these different initiatives to help prisoners. And, and uh, Colson talks about this after his conversion to Christianity, and he says, you know, we couldn't keep that lie going for 10 minutes. Everybody started to crack under the pressure. And we're expected to believe that these people who face these violent deaths because of their belief in Jesus of Nazareth who rose from the dead and who claimed to be God, we're expected to believe that they lied? It's, you never see that. People will die for what they believe to be true, but they will not die for what they know to be false. You never see it. It's, it never happens. So those are the three best excuses that you have after you do a little bit of the nerd work and a little bit of the geek work to say, well, did Jesus really say the things recorded in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? I'm here to tell you as a, as a confessed skeptic, as a natural born unbeliever, 
that my friends, you have no doubt but to be confronted with the reality that these people wrote down what they saw and what they experienced. Our problem is, what are we going to do with this? What are we going to do with Jesus, who is not just a guy who lived and died? We cannot peg him into that little, that little space. This is a man who lived and died and changed the world. What are we going to do about that? What are we going to do with the things that Jesus did, did indeed say? Because what he says speaks to us 2,000 years later, even standing in a movie theater preaching the same stuff that was preached by those people 2,000 years ago. My friends, our problem is not the evidence. Our problem is our hearts. And will we come to a place where we say we believe? Not blind faith, reasonable faith. Will we come to that place of submission where we say we believe? Wherever it takes us, we believe.